T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Okay, engine stop. ATA at a defense. Host control both autos. Engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. Today's guest on Cosmic Perspective Radio from NEAF 2023 are veteran of four space shuttle missions and the first woman to pilot and command a U.S. space shuttle, Eileen Collins, and author and Astronomical Society fellow, Jonathan Ward. They're here with us today to discuss their book, Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, and other topics. Welcome and thanks for being with us today. Writing a book is quite an endeavor, especially for an astronaut and an author to get together and write a book. How did this all get started? Uh, I had written with Mike Leinbach uh, the book Bringing Columbia Home, and uh, we we realized that Eileen, as the uh, return to flight commander, was the, the perfect person to write the epilogue to the book. So I got to, to know Eileen through working with her on writing the epilogue for that. And then when I found out that she had not written her own memoirs. I was on her case every time I saw her to have somebody, anybody, write her memoirs because her story really needed to be told. And uh, so it was finally due to the pandemic that we were able to get together and work on this. Yeah, and I met Jonathan for the first time at the Astronaut Memorial Foundation. Uh, they do an annual ceremony remembering the astronauts who lost their lives in spaceflight. And I was on their board of directors for nine years and uh, met Jonathan at one of the events there. And that was, I think, shortly before the pandemic. It, and when the John hit, Jonathan had mentioned the book to me, and I was too busy. But when the pandemic hit and the country shut down, I started thinking that this might be the right time to do the book. So I contacted Jonathan again, and it was around April of 2020 that we decided we were going to do this. And we had a literary agent named James Hornfisher who's written several books on naval, uh, I want to say the war in the Pacific in World War II. And he joined us as our literary agent and got us a publisher, and it took off from there. So we started writing around May of 2020. It took us about a year to get through the book. That's that's a pretty short period of time. It was it was a very compressed schedule. I think we finally had the publication contract in November, and they said, "Can you get us the book by February?" And we said, "How about May?" And uh, that's what it turned out to be—almost yeah. exactly a year to the day. So the pandemic gave you enough time to, to do it in that short period of time, in, in a way. I honestly think if there was no pandemic, 
there'd be no book. Really? I'm 100% sure of that. There's no way I would have had time to write a book. It was, you know, again, because my travel had canceled, I had all this time available to really sit down and focus. And a lot of it came from memory, but I had to go through log books. I had to go through checklists. Jonathan and I both interviewed people. So it was actually a lot of research that we had to go through and make sure uh, one of the rules I had going in is everything in the book is true. We're not going to exaggerate. We're not going to fill in the blanks by making things up. Everything had to be true. In fact, we found out uh, a mistake that I had made in the first printing, and we corrected that in the second printing. I won't go into the detail now, but in the, the second printing of the book, we had that error fixed, and now the book is um, whoever reads it, you can be sure that it's all true, what all really happened. And Eileen said she wanted it to be a combination of her story, but also recognizing that uh, the story of the space shuttle program is not really told in a lot of detail, and so this was an opportunity to be a historical accounting for a very critical part of the, the middle of the space shuttle program as well. Yeah, and it's not really told from the human point of view. There's a lot documented on the technical side and the errors that were made and you know how the shuttle was designed and developed over the years. Now you're starting to see more shuttle astronauts write their story, and you're seeing more and more of that now, and I think that this is something that people want to hear about. They want to know what it's like to fly in space from the astronaut's point of view. I, I think that's wonderful because it's, it's all about history, and that's what I think is so great about this. That's why I enjoy doing this. I'm, I'm a volunteer. This is all so people could know this true story. And well, i got to tell you something funny. When I was a kid, I read science fiction. I couldn't get enough science fiction. I was kind of a geek in that area, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars. But now that I'm older, I'm, I read history, and I, I just can't get enough history. And I, I like to tell people, Jonathan's heard this many times, when I was young, I read about the future, but now that I'm old, I read about the past. One of the things that I, I, I like about history, too, is that it doesn't have to be dry. And I, this is one of the things, thinking about writing uh, Bringing Columbia Home, I sat down and I read Margaret Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken, and just realized how dramatic a story can be if you don't put any embellishment in there. All you have to do is tell the facts, and the facts themselves can be extremely compelling and extremely dramatic. And so there was really no need to put any kind of flowery exaggeration or anything like that in either Columbia or in Eileen's story. They're, they're both remarkable stories on their own. I thought the prologue was great. Not only did I understand how you felt lying on your back in the shuttle waiting for it to launch, but I almost felt as if I was there as well. Yeah, one thing I'll say without rehashing everything that's in the first chapter, but it really, it's something that we worked on a lot. You know, like me, like telling Jonathan, what did it really feel like in my own words, and then being able to write it down so the reader can actually feel it. Mm -hmm. And I do want to say that having launched four times, not every launch feels the same. There's a little bit difference. My first flight, which is the one I write in the prologue, was in February. Now in February, there's a jet stream that drops, it, you know, it runs through the atmosphere 30,000 feet to about 45, 50,000 feet, depending. And it's about 190 to 100 miles per hour, and it comes from the west and heads east. You have to launch through that in the winter. So a winter launch is going to be more dramatic. There's going to be more shaking because what happens is the boosters have these, I call it the thrust vectoring system, this you know, rocket tilt. And the software knows where the space shuttle needs to be. And as you go through that jet stream, you're getting pushed. You're going up a little bit at angle, and you're getting pushed. So those... Uh, 
TVC thrust vector control is slamming around in addition to the main engines or, and that's the reason for all the shaking. I launched in July twice and it was much smoother and I've come to the conclusion that it's because of the jet stream and the other thing is when they pour the boosters that solid rocket fuel sometimes it burns differently because there's a way that they cut it and I'm told by the engineers that some boosters will just be a rougher ride than others so you might hear some shuttle astronauts say well the ride was rather smooth but ask what time of year they launched and I was fortunate to witness two space shuttle launches up close. You certainly feel the vibration of the rocket engines, and I understand that when the SRBs, the solid rocket boosters, are jettisoned, the ride becomes a much smoother ride for the astronauts. Is that a correct? Oh, that's 100% that's true. There's no shaking in second stage. So first stage is when the boosters are firing, mm -hmm. and that's the rough part of the ride. I've heard some astronauts say it's like driving a Volkswagen down a rocky road. And then when the boosters fall off, you drive in a Mercedes on the Autobahn. <laughs> it's so smooth. And there's another factor, it's, it's the acceleration. You know, you get two and a half Gs in first stage and then three Gs in second stage. So that's three times your weight. So I tell people, if you could stand on a weight scale, pick your weight. Let's say you weigh 150 pounds. Well, if you could stand on a weight scale during a launch, it would register 450 pounds. And that's how much weight you have to acceleration on your body while you're going through about four and a half minutes to about eight and a half minutes on the ride going up. You're being hurled into space. It's almost comical. It's, I mean, it's almost laughable. And I will say, we train over and over again in the motion base. You train for the shaking, the sound, the emergencies, talking on the radio, throwing switches. You train for all that. You cannot train for the acceleration. One time we go into a centrifuge. They used to have one at Brooks in San Antonio. It's not there anymore. But they sent us to the centrifuge one time and take us up to three G's. That's what it's going to be like. And then you don't feel it again until the actual launch day. Does the centrifuge actually give you the same feeling that you have or is it still a little different? There? Yeah, I would say so. You can't shake the centrifuge though. There is no particular trainer that takes all of it and puts it together. So we do part task training. You know, you do the centrifuge to get the G level, you do the motion based simulator to get the shaking. And then we also had a fixed base sim where you could train, you know, all the other things, emergencies and the lighting and the radio calls. And it's very important for the astronaut to be able to block out all of those environmental factors that can be very distracting. You know, you do not want to be distracted. If there's an emergency, you want to be able to just focus on what you're doing. The procedures I memorized and I got to the point where I could reach with my eyes closed and almost know where those switches were. Let's say, for example, helium leak on a main engine, which is something they thought was going to be a common malfunction. We never had one that required a pilot to do that procedure, but I had it memorized. So if I ever had to isolate a helium leak on one of the engines, I could get through that really fast through the displays, the switches, the checklist. And I memorized APU shutdown. I memorized tie two main buses together. Uh, there were a couple of them that, you know, I wanted to be really good and we're evaluated in the simulator and you get those malfunctions, the faster you can get through them, the faster you can possibly save the mission or save your life. And you always want to look good for mission control too. You don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing. The astronaut's prayer? Is a well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Don't mess up. You know, I was thinking also about, you know, you talk about the T-38 as being, I mean, we, we talk extensively about you being the first female instructor pilot, but then also the, the need for that kind of 
acceleration that's going on at the real-time decision-making that has to happen when you're flying supersonic. And, uh, yeah, so the T-38 was a very important, like the NASA Inspector General would come in like every three years and try to take away the T-38s, and they would make us justify the money that it cost. I mean, the, really, the T-38 is like the cheapest jet airplane you can fly anywhere. It's got, you know, the Air Force flies it, it's got a logistical system, it's got a maintenance system that's all set up. and. But we still had to justify why we had that airplane, and we needed it because it was the only real world, in the real world, where you could kill yourself if you didn't know what you were doing. In the simulator, you could, quote, die in the sim, but you'd still walk away and say, oh, I killed myself, but now I'm going to go have lunch. We all knew that you were not really accountable for your life in the simulator, maybe for your ego. <laughs> but not for your life. So in the T-38, you can kill yourself if you don't know what you're doing. So you get the, I want to say the real world training. You're talking with a real air traffic controller. You're doing real navigation. As a pilot, I have a mission specialist in my back seat. I've got to be able to talk with him or her over the radio. You normally, I mean, you can use hand signals a little bit, but it requires us to learn that cockpit resource management, you know, know your job, do your job, know what the other people are doing and communicate and all of these I want to say techniques that we use in training carry on into spaceflight and so the astronauts are still flying T-38 today. I, I recall reading in your book you said whether you're flying a T-38 or, or the space shuttle is that you have to keep your mind completely on that and nothing else how do you keep that focus so that your mind doesn't drift someplace else? It is really easy for your mind to drift off if you're not busy. This is one of the issues with automation. So future spacecraft are going to be more and more automated. And one of the concerns, well, let's, let's talk about commercial airliners that you fly on. Now they're talking one pilot instead of two because so much is going to be automated. And I think there's a real problem there in complacency. And if you're watching the autopilot do it all, uh, you know, maybe you could fall asleep or maybe you could be daydreaming and something could happen there. So the focus, which we talk about in the book a lot, how important focus is, is having techniques to always come back, mainly keep yourself busy. And in the T-38, we did not have an autopilot. There was a proposal to put one in. I was against it. I said, our flights are only an hour, an hour, 15 minutes long. That's not the purpose. You know, yes, an autopilot can help us from drifting off our altitude, but we're supposed to be flying. So that is a, it's a good question. It's a problem for future aircraft and future spacecraft. I mean, as, as you probably know, the current spacecraft, the Orion capsule and the, and the uh, Dragon, SpaceX, which flies on the Falcon 9, and there's also a Boeing Starliner coming up. They're extremely uh, automated. So it's important that you keep the astronauts busy. So that's the answer to your question. How you stay focused, you've got to stay busy doing something. I think one of the things, especially about the space shuttle, was that you were really flying on the knife edge of things could go wrong very quickly and very catastrophically in, in a big hurry if anything went wrong. I don't know if the, the Dragon capsule and the Orion are a little bit more forgiving in that regard than uh, that hypersonic reentry. They, are, they are more forgiving today. So let's take an example of the history of the space shuttle program from... 1981 to 2011. So one of the things that, that I had to do as a pilot was after MECO, main engine cutoff, you have to throw some switches over here. What you're doing is venting out any extra fuel or oxidizer that's in these great big lines, these great big 17-inch lines. And 
they have to be done in a certain order because if you do those switches in the wrong order, you could overpressurize those lines and boom. So we were very careful that we not only did them in order but had them memorized. Okay, that was automated in about the year 2005 maybe and uh, it was a safety uh, issue because we're relying on a pilot to, who just got in space and maybe it's his or her first time in space and now you're floating like your neck ring is up here and your helmets and you got your checklist pages are floating you got tethers floating dust in the air and you're like whoa I'm in space oh now I've got to go turn around with your helmet on and get the right switches so we were concerned so that's been automated that's a good thing about automation and these new spacecraft things like that are completely programmed into the computer and the crew doesn't have to worry about it. Now, if a malfunction occurs, this is true for aircraft also, if a malfunction occurs, the software recognizes the malfunction and boom, 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 does the switches, does what's required to fix that problem. And then you'll get notified as a crew member, oh, this just happened. So it's a whole different way of doing things. I think it's safer. It'll save more lives because it's faster. But from a pilot's point of view, it's a little bit disconcerting. You're like, oh, okay, what just happened? What are they doing to my spacecraft? Maybe that's an old way of thinking. Because as the young pilots come up, they're just going to be used to having all these emergency procedures automated. Yeah. So long answer to the question, but, it, but that's a good question. I was fortunate enough to be able to go into the spatial discovery when I decommissioning it. And I can tell you that I was amazed at how many switches there were above you, below you, on the sides. Uh, that you're responsible for, and to keep focused. And uh, as you said, I guess it's it's memory, right? You, you memorize every one of those switches, what they do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I definitely all the, I had all the switches memorized, both sides. The one that was a little bit harder was the circuit breakers overhead. I I kind of knew like where they were. I I couldn't reach those with my eyes closed. I had to look at those. But the ones that are in front of me and on the side, I don't like the way it was designed. It was designed by the early shuttle astronauts and without picking on them I know that they had disagreements and somebody won out on how you ergonomically put those switches and like is up on and is down off in the middle auto well they moved those like auto was at the top and on was in the middle and like you have to kind of relearn things from airplanes so all that you know switchology is really in the older aircraft and spacecraft because if you look at the SpaceX spacecraft today, they have screens. So you don't interact through switches and circuit breakers that much anymore. I mean, they might have a few. You don't have paper checklists. All of it's electronic. And there, there are some backups. For example, your attitude indicator, you really want, that shows you on my up, down, right, like, you know, which way am I looking? You want to have a backup for that because that's, that's really important that you maintain control of your spacecraft. But for the most part, the spacecraft are looking less cluttered, less switches, less fuses and circuit breakers. Yeah, I did notice that on the SpaceX flights that I was amazed that, I guess you could say how much was automated compared to, the show yeah, was designed so, uh, after the Apollo era, right? So uh, yeah. to me it looked very much like when I had seen pictures I've never been inside an Apollo capsule, but the switching looked very similar. Well, the stick was an Apollo stick. Was it? Okay. Yeah, it was the exact, I think they took it off the shelf from the Apollo program mm -hmm. and it was still functional on the space shuttle. It, we, you know, we used the little switches on it. We used for different things. But I don't want to get into our talk this afternoon, but we're going to talk about, like, today's pilots. You don't have to be a certified pilot. You don't have to go to the FAA and get your 
pilot certification or take the ground test, do all the requirements. Um, well, the ground test is probably the hardest thing. You've got to take a check ride with an FAA examiner. They have a similar process in the military. You don't have to go through that to be a pilot on a spacecraft today because so much of it is automated and you don't have to land it anymore. It's a splashdown. So being a pilot in today's space program is different from being a pilot of, for example, United Airlines or you know, flying your little Cessna 150 around. It's maybe we need a new term for it. From what we've already discussed, there, there's so much information that you both put together to write this book. Were there some memorable experiences that you had while writing the book that you'd like to share with us? It was a great process. I felt really good about it, and I, I felt that we could be completely open and honest with each other, which was it was very refreshing. If I did something she didn't like, she'd let me know real fast, and uh, I would work hard to try to pull... You know, the typical thing you always hear about, well, the astronauts don't have emotions, pilots don't have emotions. How are you going to get people to talk about that? And I think Eileen did a great job of differentiating between, you know, she would say, like, as the commander, I couldn't be scared. I could be concerned, but the scared you work out of your system. You I never want concerned. to be scared in front of your crew. Yeah. Never. Uh, never. Yeah. And then I thought it was interesting when, when John Young threw you that question during your astronaut interview, have you ever been scared in an airplane? That's right. And your answer was? And, well, the answer is yes, because he knows you're lying if you say no. Like, what are you trying to cover? So I said, which time do you want to hear about? <laughs> of course you're scared. I, I remember going over thunderstorms. I, I think this made it into, we had some editing, so I don't know if it stayed in the book or not, but I had a mission specialist in my back seat, and we were flying over some thunderstorms in the T-38, and I was scared to death. If we lost an engine, we were dead. The, the forecast didn't show thunderstorms. But anyway, we were up at 49,000 feet. If you go over 50,000 feet, you need a pressure suit. That's what's in the regs. So we're up there trying to get over this thunderstorm, and I'm just saying, yeah, Janice, this is fine. We're going we're gonna to be just fine. We're gonna. And inside, I'm like scared to death. I'm like, please, God, get me out of this, and I promise I'll never do it again. <laughs> but you've always got to be confident in front of your crewmates because you don't want them to lose confidence in you or maybe lose their head and not be able to function. And the funny thing was she believed me. And I told her afterwards, I said, yeah, we're not doing that again. So I mean, we were told that particular day, night, it was nighttime, we were told the top of the storm is at 30,000 feet. So we took off to go over it and it wasn't. In the interim, it had built up to some incredibly high, and, and pilots have died in the T-38. The T-38 can't take hail. Pilots have died going down through storms in hail. So it's it's a pretty dangerous thing to do. So fortunately, they put a radar on the plane, which we didn't have back in those days. Anyway, that's just one story. I'm not sure if that, uh, that one, that one didn't cut. make the book, but I do remember there was one story about you as an instructor pilot flying through a hailstorm and, yeah, and getting, getting the nose uh, holes punched through the nose and the PO2 yeah. broken off. That was years earlier, and I used that story about going through a thunder. So I was a young lieutenant when that happened. Um, lessons learned, you know, dealing with mistakes. You talk about how you recover from mistakes. It's not career-ending. I'm still alive, and you know, things like that. We had to edit some of that down, but I wanted the book to have not oh, look at me, I'm some astronaut who did everything perfect. That was not what we wanted the book to be. We wanted it to be, we made this mistake, and this is what we learned from it, and this is how it changed the mission or how it changed the way we do things. So there's kind of a safety, I want to say a little bit of safety philosophy in there also. 
one of the things that was really intriguing to me was when Eileen said, I really want to have a chapter that talks about what I learned from this and some of my processes that I do. Here's the seven-step process for dealing with a mistake. Here's, you know, various things like that. And it becomes a, a, a really wonderful leadership handbook as well. So I think... That yeah, it, so it, Jonathan does coaching. He does, like, leadership coaching. Is a, yeah, you probably yeah. you have a term for it, but it's interesting how we did that at NASA, like how we did cockpit resource management, which we had to change to crew resource management for whatever reason, and how uh, the steps that we do is we brief and debrief and how it's like I mentioned earlier number one know your job and do your job number two know what the other crew members are doing and number three communicate and we would fail in various times in the simulator because usually because too many malfunctions and people just you know your hair's on fire and you're just trying to stay alive in the sim and then we would debrief afterwards hey did we follow our procedures for making mistakes dealing with conflict because some no no I think we should do it this way no we need to do it this way that's really the job of the commander when you is to come in and say do it this way just let's just get it done let's not sit here and talk about because we're wasting time and then you know dealing with uh, making decisions and you know in the end you want your crew to make the decision is the commander you're not supposed to be telling everybody what to do but you want them to know their particular job and make their own decisions but the commander's there in case there is conflict or maybe some indecision which doesn't normally happen but it happens in the simulator it doesn't really happen on missions that much i think we talked about it a few times in the book there was one on sts 93 where yeah, was the crew didn't really agree with mission control and we had to we had to resolve that it was an interesting thing because everybody had been training in their own little experiment but they hadn't put them all together. What happens if all five of us are trying to be in the same place at the same time working with the same equipment? And, and the other yeah. thing, that was the 93 mission with the Chandra. We spent 99% of our training time on Chandra because we did not, as a $2 billion telescope, we did not want that thing to fail. We, and then all those little secondary experiments were like, oh, yeah, you know, they're not going to, no, that one only cost two, $2 million. It didn't cost $2 billion. So, and that's where we had our problems, in the areas where we didn't really train. But it all worked out in the end. But they all—they got their data. Yeah, and great leadership lessons. Because Eileen realized what was going on, and she called a timeout, and she and she asked the crew. Timeout. Yeah, yep. timeout. Let's talk about how this is going. What can we do, you know, to reprioritize or to? So I, yeah. that that being able to call a timeout like that is an extremely valuable leadership lesson, no matter what field you're in. And that's a hard thing to do because I remember Story Musgrave, who was the Capcom, kept calling us, and I'm like. Don't anybody answer that. I took the mic and I put it over there. We're going to figure it out, and then we'll tell them what we're doing. Because they kept calling instructions to us, and it, it was they were telling us to do things. My crew was doing something else, and Mission Control is calling and changing it. Well, you want to listen to them because the payload, the PIs, the principal investigators, it's their experiment. You want to make sure you do the right thing for them, but. It was the integration part. And, you know, for example, we had one of our recording devices failed. And we had to share the remaining ones among these experiments. And that got pretty touchy. You know, like everybody wants their data, and we had five days to get it. So, but Swiss was never, Swiss, our little ultraviolet telescope, that got priority. It was the rest of them that were fighting over 
who gets the recording device. You had, you had, we were growing butterflies. I think you had uh, caterpillars. We had caterpillars. We had a spores, a spore experiment. We were growing plants. Um, I'm trying to remember what else we had. All my missions are kind of mixing up now, but we, you know, we had something like 21, we call them secondary experiments. I'll tell you, one of the kind of, I don't want to say genius, but one of my crew members said, oh, we've got this high-definition camera here back in the days when this was like new technology. Let's use that as a recording device. And I'm like, that's a great idea. You know, we hadn't actually thought about that, so that solved some of our problem. And, and Mission Control hadn't thought of that. So there was a little bit of creativity there. But, yeah, that was, that was an ugly day. <laughs> We recovered. <laughs> I, I really could understand how that could be disconcerting, you know, that, that you're trying to do something that someone's trying to explain to you something else while you're trying to work on Well, you should take a look at Sky, the third Skylab mission. It was actually called Skylab 4, but it was the third one with astronauts on board. They actually went on strike against mission control because that mission, that was out of control. And some of it was the fact that the first two crew did way more than they were asked to do. And so when the third crew went up there, they were loaded up beyond, and I think they probably had a couple of failures too, but they went on strike. That was only, well, it was a 90-day mission, 80-something 80 80 days. 84-day yeah. day mission. So on today's standards, it's a short mission, but back then it was the longest mission they had ever flown. And, you know, he realized you need time to be a human. It you can't just times. work. Yeah, I mean, Apollo 7 also was similar, and that was a much shorter flight. But yep. Well, I thought... One of the other th fascinating things you talked about, Walson, was the philosophy difference between how the Russians, who were flying these long-duration missions at the time, how they viewed their schedule versus how the Americans came in. Of course, they had every minute of every day planned out, and the Russians are thinking about, well, what's the arc of this mission look like over the long term? What do we need to be doing versus what yeah, I they had. We learned a lot from the Russians. I think they learned a lot from us too, but they were very—I want to say—more laid back. They wanted free time. Every day we were docked with Mir or International Space Station. We had dinner together. Of course, the American astronauts like, oh, we got work to do. You know, let's work, work, work. You know, and the Russians are like, hey, what's wrong with you guys? Like, come on, let's have a drink. They even had alcohol, so they had their corvassier, and they'll sack out some of them over there. But so the commander's like, okay, all of you guys, mandatory dinner on Mir, their service module for the Russians, and we also did the same thing on the International Space Station. Because we're only docked for five, seven days, something, maybe nine days. And you want to have that, uh, I want to say, communication with the crew and getting to know each other. Because we really didn't train together. You know, I think we trained together maybe two weeks in Russia or something like that. So it's, it's important that we get along. And we had uh, the language barrier. And now today with the war in Ukraine going on, they've also got that to think about and it really hasn't affected spaceflight fortunately because our space station is i mean you got the american and the russian connected and then you got the european and the japanese module and you just can't break them apart they're not going to work they weren't designed that way so we've got to make sure that we work on our relationship in space you're listening to cosmic perspective radio we're going to continue our discussion with space shuttle astronaut Eileen Collins and author Jonathan Ward. Space exploration appears to be moving in leaps and bounds right now. What are your thoughts on the future of space exploration? 
it's really interesting to try to figure out what's going on. The Canadians and the European Space Agency and the Japanese, I think, are definite partners with us going forward. You know, I see them as being our partners as we set up operations on the moon and move forward. And the types of missions we're talking about are too expensive for any one nation to do on their own. And it's unfortunate that politics has gotten in the way. People ask the question about whether we're going to be able to cooperate with China. Right now, NASA is forbidden by law from talking with China. And at some point in the future, does that have to change? I don't know. It's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. Yeah, there's so many different ways to answer your question on so many different levels. Like, the future of spaceflight, so far it's looking great from both the civil side, U.S. government, NASA, as well as the commercial side. So the big change is NASA, instead of owning and operating all the spacecraft, the commercial company, whether it's SpaceX, Boeing, there's a variety of them, Sierra Nevada, Sierra Space Now, they own and operate their spacecraft, and NASA pays them on a permission basis. There's contracts that lawyers are involved in, you know, what is it going to cost and how much for the training, da da So we actually... Um, use them as a service instead of owning. Now, the space station is still owned and operated by the United States. The space launch system and, and the Artemis, most of the Artemis is owned and operated by the United States and the taxpayers. But we have, for example, the lander that will land on the moon on Artemis 3 will be owned by SpaceX and NASA is paying them. So that portion will be commercial or private. We use the term commercial. So it's going more from the own and operate by the government to own and operate by the private industry. So that's one big change. And then uh, the other one I mentioned earlier was automation. And the other one, with, which I think is the most important, is the one Jonathan talked about, is the international cooperation. I am very, very concerned about this. Russia, who's been a partner with us, actually I say since 1993 when we started Shuttle Mir, but all the way back to Apollo-Soyuz, we're working with the Soviets back then. And then in 93, it was the Russians. We have built incredibly good relationships. The cosmonauts to the astronauts, mission control, the engineers, the managers, very, very strong, trusting relationships. So enter the war in Ukraine and enter China. So now Russia is kind of gravitating towards China, which concerns me. India is joining the space race, and are they going to be with us, or are they going to be... So I see, I see another space race developing, and I hope it doesn't happen. China wants to land on the moon. They've never been there. We've been there, so a lot of people are like, oh, you've been to the moon. Well, that was 50 years ago. China wants to set up research stations on the moon. Now, they have signed the Outer Space Treaty, which says... No country will claim any part of outer space for its own. And they signed that in 1967. So those people are probably dead and gone now. So are these countries still going to abide by the outer space treaties? That's a question. Uh, it applies to orbits also. No country can claim any orbit. So geosynchronous orbit is kind of a precious area because you've got that stationary point over the Earth. It's good for communication, sadly, as you all know. Um, but can someone claim that belongs to my country or that belongs to my company right now no well countries signed it companies have not yeah. the moon treaty applied to or now they call it the moon agreement that applied to companies but the united states didn't sign that because we wanted private industry to go out there and claim the resources and bring them back so i have no idea where this is going to end up and i'm just hoping that 
we don't end up in a negative space race. I mean, the good thing is you go faster if it's a space race, but the bad thing is you've got the conflict there, and that, that's not good. Well, it seems like everybody is concentrating on the South Pole area of the moon. And, yeah, and, so and China wants to go to the South Pole. I think yeah. that, yeah, I mean, okay, this is on record, but clearly they're copying us doing many of the things that we're doing. There's only a very limited geography where there is water ice that, that we think is both just below the surface there. and so Yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of that, that crater on the south uh, uh, and the moon, but you can... Shackleton. Shackleton. Yeah, Shackleton. 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 Yeah, that's right. Crater. So you can set up your station on the, the uh, rim of that crater where you can get sunlight 24 hours a day, every day of the year. And you want sunlight because that's your source of power. I mean, eventually we'll be using nuclear power, which is really the answer for deep space, is having some nuclear device for electricity. And right now we're, we're going to be using solar on the moon. we got a dust issue. There's You don't have wind on the moon. But there's plenty of room up there for China and the United States to put space stations. So the race, I think, is going to be a technology. Who's going to have the technology first? And do we need to protect our technology? And you would hope that there'd be some sort of governing board on the whole thing so that... There isn't. There's the United Nations, which is not always very effective. But we're working on setting up... So right now, it's the Department of Commerce in the United States that has the lead role in who owns... The, you know, what are we going to do for governance in outer space? And a lot of that work has yet to be done. I think you mentioned also is that a commercialization... Do you think that this is something that is really positive for the, the future of human space exploration? That it's been a, a great marriage? Commercialization? Yeah, oh, without a doubt. Mass, between NASA yes, and, yeah. 100%. I'm 100% for it. If only the U.S. government was doing it, it would take forever. It would take five times longer. Yeah, it it yeah. cost way more. And it, the thing is, these private companies, they want to make a profit. That is the motive. And that's, if you just look at history, you know, hey, what's in it for me? I mean, yeah. The, they go, they make a profit, they can see now that it's actually been quite successful because when NASA puts out the bid, the request for proposal or the, um, there's Space Act agreements and a lot of other legal terms, but these companies apply in great numbers and there's a program called CLIPS, Commercial Lunar, I forgot what the rest of it stands for, but the key one is Commercial Lunar. And the recent one was robotics. So I think there were five companies that got money from NASA to build their little robotic rover in the CLIPS program and send that to the moon, and they can test it out. And so instead of having, like, one rover, you'll have all these commercial rovers, and they'll be doing different things. It's also a fascinating thing about the difference in scales that are going on. You've got uh, SpaceX building these the huge Starship. But then you've got like clips and all of the uh, CubeSats and all the little small micro rovers and things like that that are going on. So and, and that's so which, important. I mean, we're yeah. going from large, big stuff to smaller stuff. Yeah, and if something goes wrong with a small CubeSat, you've not lost nearly as much time yeah. or money. I'm trying to remember the, the NASA's administrator that talked about that. This was an unmanned exploration. Cheaper, smaller, faster. Oh, that was Golden. Dan Golden. Dan faster, Golden. better, cheaper. Faster, better, cheaper. And, and it worked. And, uh, yep. You know, maybe there'll be a bunch of rovers at one time going on, on the moon or Mars or whatever. That's I, right. That's the right strategy. I was a, a doubter about SpaceX initially when they first started going. Because, I mean, it's easy to say you're going to break a paradigm. But then they've been able to prove fantastically with you know, a huge string of successful launches without a failure. 
and scaling this up, it's a technology that's going to bring access to orbit so much cheaper. It eventually, it'll be like high-speed internet kind of thing, you know. They have other customers, too, yeah. so it's not just NASA. So, I mean, they launch satellites for companies, countries. You know, they're, I think they're going to set a record number of launches this year. I, I don't want to quote the number, but it's, it might be close to 100 launches this year. SpaceX, on, they're different launch. I mean, they've got three that I know of. They've got Vandenberg. They launch out of, of course, Florida, and then the South Texas site, which they're saying this week they're ready to launch their Starship. They're just waiting for a license from the FAA. There you go, the government slowing them down again. I was looking at uh, statistics. I was just curious as to how many missions were flown out of Kennedy Space Center in 2012, the year after the shuttle stood down. So I think there were five launches out of Cape Canaveral and Kennedy Space Center in 2012, and there were more than that in the first two months of the year. Uh, yeah. just this year. This is good. It makes it it makes it safer. It makes it more reliable. And as we go into the future, more people will be able to fly. So you've got these private missions going up now. The Inspiration 4, there's one going up this summer. I forgot what it's called. Actually, there's two. One of them is going to uh, launch with SpaceX, and they're going to a very high orbit. Four commercial astronauts, civilians, they're going to do a spacewalk. There's another one that Axiom Space is sending to the space station. They're going to dock with the space station. They've got several commercial astronauts, and they've, they've got a former NASA astronaut commander. That'll be Peggy Whitson, and they've got three privately. Uh, some of them are paying. Some of them, I think, are sponsored. But they're uh, going to see more of those missions in the future, which is good. you got more people flying, more flights. The cost comes down. gets safer just like the early days of aviation. Now you have more people that can fly. And so I think, I think it's exciting. One of the things that I like too, is going back to thinking about when you were asked if you wanted to stay on after STS-114, is you were thinking about all the, there were I think 50 astronauts in the astronaut office that hadn't flown as of that time. And you yeah. were thinking about how important it was for these people to even get just one flight so they could share what they learned about seeing the Earth from outer space and their experience in space. And so the yeah, more people that, we get doing that. Yeah, yeah, that was kind good. of a shame. We ended up with, I actually counted them, there were 50 astronauts in 2005 that hadn't even flown one mission. It was a shame. What was originally happening was these original space station flights, the managers that were signing the astronauts, oh, this is the hardest mission we've ever flown. We can't put a rookie on it. We've got to put a flown astronaut on it. So what happened was that the unflown astronauts were getting left behind. So after the accident happened and my crew got switched around, I asked for two rookies, two new guys. I know they can do the job. We need to get these guys flying. Like, oh, it's a return to flight mission. You know, it's too important. I go, I want two rookies. Well, I got one. We negotiated. And I, when he did a great job. And so after that, we got every one of those 50 flown before the shuttle program shut down, which is so important because now you have astronauts that can go out and do what I'm doing right now, talk about why it's important to fly in space, talk about the history, talk about the future. And, you know, if you've only got like seven, the Mercury 7 take, for example, they have a limited audience that they can go to. But I don't know how many astronauts have flown on the shuttle. It's Probably 300, it was maybe. Well over it's 400, a, I think. Over 400, yeah. So that's a lot of people, and a lot of them were international. So they're kind of getting the message out. And a lot of them are now writing their books. When they get old, like me, it's like time to write a book before I forget everything that happened. <laughs> I'm excited as well. I've never seen so much going on at once. I remember SpaceX, they had a rocket that exploded the very next time they went up and they launched 11 satellites like it was nothing. 
And I think what's really amazing too is that when you watch the boosters come back down, some of the technology that's been done and parts being So used. we tried to do liquid flyback boosters in the shuttle day. I remember sitting in those meetings. We could not afford it. We did not have the budget to do that. And although everybody wanted to do it, you know, I mean, the boosters, we actually did recycle them. I mean, they landed in the ocean, but they would get corroded, the ocean water. You had to have the ships bring them back and, and all that. I mean, I think a large part of the space shuttle was reusable. I mean, the orbiter itself as well. So we, we just didn't have the money to do it. But SpaceX, of course, technology has changed. They have access to more, I mean, the computers are much better today, so they were able to use that, plus get the investors. So NASA can't raise money. We wanted to put advertisements on the external tank, and by law, we were not allowed to do that. You know, you can't raise money. You just have to go to Congress and snivel for money, and most of the time, you never got, you never got, they, they called them unfunded mandates. Oh, go do this, but you're not going to get any money. Go take it out of somewhere else in your budget. And you just can't run uh, a aggressive space program that way. And sometimes you can't even run a safe space program that way, because we ended up having two accidents, and both accident boards kind of blamed, I'm going to say blaming NASA, but blaming the, the way the budget, you got to get the money from Congress, and that was just one of the many reasons that kind of snowballed down into accidents. You know, you've got to get this mission flying, you got to do it on time, um, here's your budget, you can't have any more, and, and uh, there was a time when we flew the Chandra mission, we remember asking the NASA Administrator, Dan Golden, not that we were jumping the chain of command or anything, but we just happened to be with the NASA administrator and asked him, can we get this thing funded? And I remember he said to us, the only money we have is for safety upgrades. That's it. We have no money to do any technology. Uh, I mean, forget proving the technology. We just want to fly safe. So if it's going to kill you, you can get money to fix it. Otherwise, no money. Another good reason to have a private industry there because they can take that initiative and they can go out and get sponsors and raise money, the private equity type uh, fundraising. And, you know, if SpaceX has proved themselves, I think at first I was a little bit worried about not the cargo but the astronauts. I was worried about putting our astronauts on that rocket that kept blowing up on the launch pad. And I went and talked to the SpaceX engineers and I was actually really impressed with how sharp the, these young guys and girls are very sharp and they would tell us things like um, their boss Elon Musk would tell them we can't have an accident because we're totally out of business if we have an accident and their employees have even told me back on the first couple of astronaut launches on the Falcon 9 and the Dragon capsule that he sent out an email the night before if any of you think there's any reason why we should launch tomorrow, you write to me right now. I want to know. So he was actually inserting himself in a place that would have saved, had we had someone doing that for Challenger Columbia, that would have, you know, it's a bold statement to make, but I think it would have prevented an accident. So you don't want really the manager to be too hands-on and micromanaging, but on the other hand, when you've got something as dangerous as spaceflight, maybe you need that checks and balances on top of the flight readiness review and all the other procedures that we have in place to keep it safe. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't discussed? Education. We wrote the book because we wanted we want to document the history of the space shuttle program through my four missions. It ended up being a book on memoirs which included like my time in the Air Force but I would like 
we would like young people, high school and college, to read the book. I don't think young people understand what it's like to be in the military because there's no draft anymore. That went away in 1975. So a lot of people grow up not knowing anything about the military, but I talk about that a lot in the book. And also what it's like to be an astronaut. Maybe you don't want to be an astronaut. Maybe you want to work in mission control. Maybe you want to have your experiments fly in space. You want to be a, a principal investigator on an experiment. And I think if the young people read the book, it will give them a perspective that they won't see on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram, which is where my kids are all the time. And I gave my kids a copy of the book. I don't think they've read it. I haven't asked them if they've read it. They were interviewed for the book, but Jonathan interviewed both kids. But I think education is one of the big reasons that we wrote the book to inspire the next generation. I remember one of the first things that happened when I was asking you about writing your memoirs. You said, well, every astronaut memoir was, I was a child prodigy and then I got better. Yeah. And, and, and then when we started actually talking about, you know, your very humble origins and that, you know, you don't yeah. have to be, yep. you don't have to be the straight A student when you start off, but you, you've got to study these technical fields. If you want to become an astronaut now and you've got to get a master's degree, for example, but if there's anything that you really passionately want to do, research what it's going to take to get you there. Eileen's story was about having her eye on that goal from the time she entered flight school. Maybe I can be an astronaut someday because it was right at the time that the first women astronauts were, were named for the space shuttle program. And it took you 22 years, 23 years to get there. But you knew what you had to do along the way. You knew the boxes that had to be checked. You knew what you had to learn. You knew the experiences you had to gain. And so if something's that important to you and you're that passionate about it, don't give up. Just keep working at yeah. it. And, and you, you don't have to have a lot of money. So I think some people think, well, my parents have to be connected. They have to have money. They have to send me to MIT. Um, I mean, you do need to go to a good school to be an astronaut, but you can work your way there. And the other thing is I didn't know any astronauts. Like, it wasn't like I'm on the phone, hey, can you get me an interview? Like, none of that was going on. You have to apply for military. You apply to the service, like I applied to the Air Force. They go through and they pick who they want to send names to NASA, and then you go through a very extremely fair process. And I want to say that if you try to get someone to, like, hey, can you call and put in a good word for me, that would, that would be bad because that would drop you down in their, in their view. You need to get there on your own accord. So... You know, that's another thing. You don't have to have money, connections. You just have to, you have to have the desire, but you also have to have, the, as Jonathan said, the experience and the ability to get that experience. And I think the lesson, too, also is your preparation. You worked so hard. You know, you, you took all the time you could get uh, working weekends to do extra flights and things like that. But when the time came, it wasn't, hey, we need a woman, let's get Eileen to do this. It was, Eileen is the best qualified person for this role. Let's pull her in there and have her do that. Yeah, so they was, definitely was didn't. I was the second to the last person in my class to fly, so there was no, oh, let's put her to the front of the line. None of that was going, which I appreciated. If you want a special assignment, you've got to be the no-risk person for that. You've got to be the person who has something to offer to bring to the table, especially when you're flying a $2 billion machine like Chandra or something like that, that you know, there's no question in our minds that she's the right person for this job. Yeah, and not every astronaut gets through astronaut training either. I mean, the hardest thing is to get an interview, but once you get the interview, it's normally like 120 people. They might pick 20. Today, they pick like 10, and then you've got to get assigned to a flight. It's very hard when you keep getting passed over. For I say passed over, but it's not your turn yet. 
but I think that we really instill the concept of fairness. Uh, it's not fair. Don't expect it to be fair. You know, one of you is going to fly first and one of you is going to fly last. And it turns out Neil Armstrong was, in his class of astronauts, he was the last one to fly in space. But then he landed on the moon. <laughs> There's no concept of fairness, like you can't fly all the astronauts first time on the first flight. Part of it is the jobs you have, but most of it is getting the crew together that's the right crew with the right skills. You need a cross-section of skills, and that's what determines what flight you get on. And then also, you want to, you know, most of the crews get along well. I mean, one of the hardest things when you pick an astronaut is, the hardest to judge is your ability to get along with people, which is why the astronaut board calls. They don't just call your boss. They call your peers and the people that work for you. Like, how was this person as your boss? Were they a good boss? Because I think you can really tell a lot more about a person if you're working for them, you know, because you, you know, like, is this a good boss or not? And so we like to pick people that were good bosses, you know, that were good, good people to work with. And so you want to get all of those types of skills together for a crew. And so maybe you fly first, maybe you fly last. And it, it's very competitive. And now, you know, who's going to be the crew that lands on the moon? So I actually asked the chief of the astronaut office that question, and he didn't appreciate it. This was just a few months ago. Everybody is, like, asking this question, like, who's going to be the crew that lands on the moon? You've got 41 astronauts. Well, four of them just came out. The four that are doing Artemis II that are going to orbit, they're not going to be the ones that land. So the other will be sitting there. I mean, maybe they know, but, like, is it going to be me? I'm not sure I'd want to be in that situation wondering... Is it going to be me? Am I going to be the next crew to land on the moon? I mean, I'd love to do it, but just having to wait for that announcement has got to be agony. And once they've been named, too, what kind of pressure? I mean, you know the kind of pressure that you were under once you were named as the first be one. be a lot pilot. of pressure on yeah, them. And, yeah. A lot of pressure, but, but these systems are very automated today. Less chance to mess up, a lot less. Like the Apollo astronauts had many places they could mess up and ruin the whole mission if they didn't fly or like Neil Armstrong he was golden hands he I mean another pilot might have aborted that landing but he was such a good pilot he was able to save that at the last minute with like at the very bottom of his fuel so they were very talented but they knew how much was manual flying I'm sure that when we land Artemis 3 it's going to be automatic landing I I don't know for sure I'm just guessing that they're not going to be hand-flying it, but they'll probably train to hand-fly in case the automated system doesn't work. So today, there's not as much pressure to perform because of the automation, but they still have to be highly trained in steely nerves, you know, ability to make decisions when death is like right in front of you. you got to be able to make decisions. Just think of the media pressure that's got to be under the... Yeah, the media pressure, but normally that's after the flight. I, th I always thought, as a commander, I did a good job of, like, we had a press conference, get it all over one time, then you could do one-on-ones, and one afternoon it's over, and that's it. And then after the flight, you go back and talk about it. But you've got to keep the media out while you're training. It's all about focusing. You've got to do one, though. So we would do one afternoon, just so people knew who we were. Well, I want to thank you both, Jonathan and Eileen, for writing this book, uh, explaining what the whole process is, and your, your goal is to inspire the next generation, and that's where everything's headed. So I can't tell you how happy I am and grateful that you both came today and joined us, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I'm glad we, uh, we didn't fall off the stools. <laughs>
There's too much gravity here. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Cosmic Perspective Radio. If you have any questions about today's broadcast, you can reach me at my email address at andy.science at wpkn.org or at Twitter at andy underscore ssa. The next Cosmic Perspective Radio will air on the fourth Saturday of the month from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. If I don't see you by then, clear skies, everyone.